I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Hi there, everybody. I am so excited to have Terry Park, PhD, with me here today. He's the founder and CEO of Mom Consulting LLC, an Asian American studies based educational consulting business offering. J-E-D-H-I, there's all sorts of lovely acronyms that are, that are, that I've seen coming out. So J-E-D-H-I, you know, as a a side note here, justice, equity, diversity, healing, and inclusion. So his, his business offers um, J-E-D-H-I minded online courses, curriculum assistance, and professionalizations engagement, engagements. Dr. Park previously served as a faculty member at seven higher education institutions, including Harvard University, Wellesley College, the University of Maryland, College Park, Miami University, and San Quentin State Prison. Included on the list, inspiring activists, trailblazers, and leaders in the community and in the struggle for social justice by former San Francisco supervisor, Jane Kim. Terry has participated in several national and community-based Asian American organizations across the U.S., including a stint as executive director of Hyphen Magazine, an award-winning national print and web-based publication on Asian American culture, politics, and arts. Raised in San Jose, California, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Seoul, Korea, Terry's free time includes getting to know his new home of Columbus, Ohio, scaling gym walls and pub menus, learning to make ice cream, and enjoying walks with his spirited mixed breed rescue puppy, Miles. Terry, thank you so much for joining me. And I think we first need to start with what kind of ice cream you're making um, before we get any further, because I think that's yeah. um, obviously the most important thing we're going to be talking about today. It is. Uh, I mean, sadly, I, I just put away my ice cream maker uh, no. since it's winter. Yeah, though, I guess there are some maybe winter based flavors. I was thinking of making a pumpkin based ice cream in October, but um, yeah, I was making uh mostly strawberry i think i made like 10 batches just because it's pretty easy uh and a good way to learn and then uh i made a batch of vanilla for my mother-in-law and then did i make chocolate i think i i was going to make chocolate um but (laughs) i mean this is one of my many ideas and who knows if i'll actually pursue it but i was thinking of uh, experimenting and uh, maybe even opening an ice cream shop uh, offering Asian-based fruits. Yes. So like, I mean, mango exists, but like, so surprisingly, I'm in, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, there are a good amount of Asian supermarkets with a lot of great Asian produce. And I mean, I've seen fruit that I'd never heard of, um, like rambutan. Ooh. Which are like, um, oh, not not persimmon, the other one. They're like little round, kind of like kiwi, but but not. Anyway, they're they're great. That's and, fun. I love fruit from yeah. different parts of the world. I think that I would buy all of your ice cream if you could send it to me in Atlanta. Um, 
So, um, so I love that. I love that. Well, let's, a, a nice segue to um, the, the, the actual reason you're on the podcast, right. which is um, discussing the amazing work you're doing in um, Asian American, Asian American studies and, um, and culture and, um, and, and the new work you're doing in, in your consulting business. So I'd love to hear how you got started a little bit about your background. Um, and yeah, let's start with that. Sure. And also, thanks for having me on your <laughs> podcast. Um, so I uh, left academia last spring. Uh, I was a professor of Asian American studies, um, like you mentioned in my bio, for seven years, eight years, hopped around uh, to lots of different institutions, um, tried to secure an elusive tenure track job, which is almost extinct these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in the process of teaching Asian American studies, I saw that you know, it had a lot of power to uh, reach not just Asian Americans, but also non-Asian Americans uh, to acknowledge the long presence, uh, challenges, contributions of Asian Americans in the US uh, and yeah, I mean, even for students of mine of Asian descent, you know, they came in thinking they knew about what it means to be Asian American because they're Asian American. Uh, but by the end of the semester, they were blown away by how much they didn't know and and also why they didn't get this kind of education in high school, middle school, elementary school. So you know, I loved seeing uh, my students uh, really be proud of their Asian Americanness, but I also felt a little sad that this power was limited to the classroom mm. and really just a handful of colleges, mostly in California, maybe New York, mostly on the coasts, that offer Asian American studies programs and departments, or maybe a few courses. Uh, so, and, you know, at the same time, and this was before COVID and, you know, the resurgence of anti-Asian violence, you know, I would share these stories with Asian American and non-Asian American friends of mine, uh, most of whom are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, some of whom are parents and have kids who have questions about what it means to be Korean American or Vietnamese American or Pakistani American, and they didn't know how to answer these questions, not just for their kids, but also for themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, some of them attended college where they had Asian American studies courses, but, you know, at the time they just weren't interested or, you know, they went to college in the Midwest, uh, totally isolated, similar to the way that I was raised in Utah, like hungry for anything about Asian American history, culture, society, but not knowing where to access it. So that's really what drove me to, well, that wasn't the only reason, but it's a big reason why I left academia, because I thought Asian American studies needs to be more accessible to those outside of the ivory tower uh, and to all Americans, whether of Asian descent or not, uh, not just in a few states, but all over the U.S., and then, of course, when COVID hit in March and we begin to see, you know, the first attacks against uh, Asian Americans, especially elderly folks, 
that desire to share the power of Asian American studies amplified even more. And uh, yeah, that's what really drove my desire to start Maon Consulting. What does Maon mean? Or where does the name come from? Uh, It comes from uh, the Korean word Maon, which uh, for those of your listeners who speak Korean, I may not be pronouncing it correctly, but um, it's uh, it's a Korean word that, from my limited understanding and 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 research, uh, understands the self, the human self, uh, and and specifically the mind, the body, the spirit, uh, all of these elements as integrated or connected, but then they become disconnected or disintegrated as we get older or in an Asian American context, uh, grow up in the US without knowledge or access uh, to these ancestral wisdoms that understand the human body as whole, as unified, right? So, you know, uh, applied to an educational context, I guess it's sort of similar to social emotional learning right, these ideas of empathy and compassion and awareness as just as important as any other um, skill or, or value. So uh, that's my understanding of, of mom. And I mean, I grew up hearing my, my mom um, say, oh, my mom. And I, I knew she meant my feeling, but also like my thoughts, but also my memories. And I really like that slipperiness between these different concepts that, you know, we don't just learn with our, with our brains, but we learn with our bodies, right? Or that healing can take place in different parts of, our, of ourselves. Um, so I really like that idea, uh, and not just because it comes from my own ancestral culture, but I think it really captures what a lot of people, and I saw it in my students, are are really yearning for, right? A different kind of education that's not just about reading a bunch of books or listening to a bunch of lectures, right? Like, I'm sure my clients, my future clients, they can do that on their own, right? They can buy a book online, but uh, I think people are, especially in this age of COVID and Zoom screens and iPhone screens, they're yearning for a sense of connection, a sense of belonging, um, and yeah, especially with this wave of anti-Asian hate, uh, you know, compassion, empathy are needed more than ever. So, yeah, I love that so much. You you sort of started with this like, well, I don't really know if I'm getting it right, and then you <laughs> this, this beautiful poetic, and I love the word slipperiness. I love how you talked about oh. that. I I think you you. Um, it's, it's hard when it's something you've kind of grown up with, like you've heard your mom saying it, but it's like, okay, well, what is the definition versus like, what is the feeling that evokes, you know, mm. and the, the concept and the, the connection that it fosters. And I think that's, that's awesome. I love that. Um, so, and, and, and this sense too, of like, I've heard this in a lot of different spaces in in my work, examining my, the relationship of my own religion of Judaism to whiteness and um, just in general, other, other um, as people get closer and closer to whiteness, mm-hmm. they lose more and more of 
like you were saying that, that um, ancestral wisdom and, and their sense of who they are and their belonging. And then it becomes kind of all about whiteness or getting close to whiteness. And, and that's where so many things go mm-hmm. wrong, you know? And so I think having this work where you're, where people are able to connect to the, you know, like the integrated part of this, I think is, is, is great. Um, what, how did you, how did you decide that you wanted to be an, an Asian American studies professor? What was your journey like? Um, is that something you always knew you wanted to study formally? Um, mm-hmm. How did that come about? Yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of whiteness, uh, I think it was really informed by the overwhelming presence of whiteness in my life. Uh, again, I, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is not the most diverse state in the country, <laughs> uh, though it's become more diverse. Uh, but when I was there, when I grew up there in the 80s and 90s, uh, I felt totally alone as a person of color, as an Asian American, as a non-Mormon. Um, and yeah, most of my friends were white. Most of my teachers were white. And I just had an innate understanding that anything associated with my Asian-ness, which included my own parents and especially my mother, who uh, is not fluent in English. And so like she was just a reminder of precisely that which I could never attain and which I desperately wanted to, uh, which is which is whiteness. And you know, it was just it was a door that I kept hitting over and over again, uh, and yet still tried to open and and could never, you know, access the contents behind that door of whiteness. But, you know, as a 12-year-old, 14-year-old, listening to Pearl Jam, Nirvana, uh, (laughs) uh, playing sports to try to prove my uh, whiteness and masculinity, right? So thinking about gender as a way that I understood my Asian-Americanness as always lacking, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw that mirrored back to me in all the films that I watched, all the John Hughes teen comedies with Long Duck Dong and these other reminders of, oh, I see, I'm an embarrassment. I'm a a punchline in this country. And uh, again, anyone who is Asian or Korean around me is someone I need to desperately avoid. Uh, not talk to, not hang out with, even if they're they're my own family members. So I think I arrived at college with a lot of these frustrations, confusion, questions, and you know, taking the one Asian American studies class that my college offered, uh, it did help me start to make sense of um, of these feelings. Uh, which, and, and uh, just to recommend to your readers, uh, what Kathy Park Hong calls minor feelings in her really, really awesome book uh, uh, with the same title, Minor Feelings. Um, just this idea that something isn't right, but we're constantly being told we're okay. 
that were not really minorities, uh, that were basically white, even though our lived experiences tell us, again, that we can't access uh, the, you know, the, uh, the contents of, of whiteness, no matter how hard we try. Um, so yeah, uh, my, uh, studies of Asian American studies continued in grad school. Um, but I, I was actually an actor before I became an academic and that's really where I began to explore these questions of my Korean Americanness, and especially its relationship with trauma, and especially the way that it manifests intergenerationally, um, how it gets inherited from our parents and grandparents, many of whom, you know, especially within an Asian American context, experienced incredible amounts of violence, whether the Korean War, as in the case of my parents, or poverty, or genocide in the case of Cambodian Americans. I mean, there's just so much uh, unaddressed trauma in our communities, in my family. And so uh, that's how I approached uh, my studies of, of Asian American history and culture was through performance. Uh, I did a uh, an off-Broadway solo show called 38th Parallels that you know was based on a lot of interviews with with my parents about what it was like during the Korean War and they opened up and especially my dad they opened up in ways that I'd never like they barely ever talked about the Korean War um if they did my dad he he would talk about it in in these kind of strange ways that I remember him saying when I was a kid that, oh, I had a lot of fun. And I'm like, what? How can war be fun? And he talked about staying at uh, his uncle's farm uh, south of Seoul to you know get away from uh, the North Korean communists. But then when I sat down with him uh, to interview him for my solo show, so many more memories opened up that were much more painful um, and it really, I really began to realize how his pain and my mother's pain shaped our relationships and shaped my own sense of self. Um, so yeah, um, I think it, my journey as an Asian American studies academic started, uh, from an artistic or performance point of view, but then I saw, um, there weren't a lot of opportunities for Asian American actors in the mid 2000s. <laughs> you know, I think Harold and Kumar go to White Castle had just come out, but other than that, you know, this is pre Crazy Rich Asians, pre uh, Farewell. Um, I had an agent. I went on a few auditions. Uh, I remember being in casting rooms with hundreds of really good-looking Asian American men, all auditioning for the one crappy role, print mm -hmm. ad, whatever. So. I decided, um, may, I think I need something more stable. And in my mind, <laughs> and this shows how little I knew about academia, I thought academia oh, would guarantee me oh, a stable. <laughs> yeah, I clearly did not talk to enough uh, academics or grad students. Um, but yeah, that's how I uh, became an Asian American academic. 
there is so much to unpack in that story. I mean, that is amazing. And so like, so I don't know if vulnerable is the right word, but just honest about, about that search for whiteness. And, Mm -hmm. and, and I see, I see a lot of that in, in other stories I've heard from other and basically anyone living in this country who is not quote unquote, like mm. white, white, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. amongst Jewish people, the, a similar thing happens, but there's not the same like facial, you know, there's, there's not the, the racial component. So you can like hide better and avoid it. But mm-hmm. just the way you talked about, um, I, I'm a punchline in this country that really like resonated with me. Um, and that you, that you actively felt like I need to avoid this to feel safe and to feel belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and how that it divides, you know, it, it's like the opposite of mom. It's, it's the, it's the disintegration, yes. like you were saying. Um, and, and, and then everything you were saying about trauma and how that forms your sense of, you know, intergenerationally that the, the sense of self and like, okay, well, I've had this trauma. Therefore I need to do everything I can to like get towards safety, you know, which in this country looks like whiteness. Um, right. But was, I mean, that didn't feel safe either. Like I didn't, right, right. I couldn't find any sense of safety. I didn't feel safe uh, among other Korean Americans, especially in Utah, because, uh, and this is pretty common for a lot of Korean American communities, uh, it was centered around the church, uh, the Presbyterian church. Okay, yeah. And I did not, really identify as Christian. It didn't feel right. A lot of it was in Korean and I couldn't understand Korean really. So that didn't feel safe. There really weren't other Asian Americans around like a a cohesive community. Um, The ones that were there were sort of like me, just sort of wandering and, and, and doing their best to attain whiteness. And then, yeah, I mean, whiteness itself always... It, it felt like a betrayal. There were always these moments where I would be rudely reminded that I was not white, whether it was, and I, I still remember this in middle school biology, uh, Jacob Connors in the middle of class, turning around, shouting my name, and then um, doing the slanted eye gesture. And then looking around and seeing all of my friends people I'd grown up with since the second grade, strangers laugh at me with the teacher, his back turned towards me. Like that crystallized how uh, just how unsafe I felt, but I had nowhere to turn to. Like I didn't, I wasn't in California. I wasn't in New York. I didn't have a Korea town or a Chinatown or a community organization uh, that I could uh, find refuge in. And, and, you know, like, like you said before, yeah, I, I wanted to disassociate myself from my family and they didn't understand either. Like I would tell my, my mom, Oh, so-and-so did this or said this. And she couldn't relate because she's not Asian American, but that's not her experience. Mm. Um, and so I really sought out Asian American studies as that space of belonging and recognition support but then as i found out because it's housed within academia and academia in general can be incredibly violent 
and exploitative. Uh, even the, the safety of Asian American studies was constantly undermined. And that also pushed me to really want to just get out of academia and uh, create something like my business that is really committed to values of inclusion and, and safety. Um, and I mean, that's something I'm still thinking through, but yeah. And now I understand the H in the yes. JCHI or whatever, however, um, I've seen the yeah. letters arranged in different ways, but the, I haven't, this is the first time I've ever seen the H in healing. I've seen belonging, um, justice, but I haven't seen uh, healing. I love that so much. So how do you, okay, so what, for, I want to kind of get a sense from you, um, uh, your your thoughts on the word model minority and 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 how that like does or does not maybe pigeonhole you in any ways and like your experience as a child like having those things said but maybe culturally like you're not supposed to be loud or confrontational or is there any were there any expectations of how you were supposed to handle that <laughs> yeah um i think uh i I both, I mean, and, and it, you know, you could substitute the word whiteness in there. I, I, I both embraced and ran away from this model minority myth, right? That, you know, I, I subconsciously knew that as, uh, as, as an Asian American, I'm supposed to be <clears throat> docile, quiet, submissive, um, you know, all of these stereotypes that all of us know uh, about Asians or Asian Americans. And I pushed hard, you know, that's why I did theater. That's why I did debate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I was often, I, 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 at least in elementary school, I was seen as popular and, and, and likable, but I knew that that, that likability was based on a complete erasure of anything Asian or Korean, right? Like I was, and I think that's why I was a good actor because in a sense, as model minorities, we have to be good actors. We have to learn the script of whiteness and utter the lines without an accent, um, committed to the role, but knowing that this is, it's, 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 it's fiction. It's a performance that's not actually true to our our lived experiences to what our parents went through our ancestors right um so you know in this model minority myth there, there are always these cracks that a lot of us are aware of that that belie this myth right that it's actually not true that we're you know well integrated um, that we're healthy, that we have, we don't have any problems and we don't need assistance from, from anyone. Um, but that's why it can be so damaging, right. Uh, to, to reach out and ask for help. Um, and I see that in, in, in a lot of my college students, but at the same time, and, and, and this is something that, that I would often challenge some, some of my students with some Asians have to recognize that we do have some privileges right? Not all Asians, and that's, that's the insidious nature of the model minority myth, is that it uh, presents us as a monolith, 
right? That there are no differences between a working class, first generation Cambodian immigrant living in Long Beach, suffering from PTSD, having a hard time graduating from high school, getting racially profiled by the police, and someone like me, second generation, middle class, the son of an engineer who I could turn to for help with my math homework if I, if I needed it, right? Mm-hmm. But yet, we're both subjected to the same set of stereotypes, right? That we're all crazy rich Asians, uh, super intelligent, we all go to the Ivies, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, there is some privilege with certain Asian American uh, American communities, most of them East Asian American, um, some South Asian communities. And, and so when I talk about Asian American history or Asian American social issues, and not just me, but you know any good Asian American studies professor, uh, we try to complicate this picture, right? We, we try to dismantle this myth of the model minority um, to show that there are specific challenges that for you know Vietnamese Americans or Hmong Americans that they face that some of us don't have to face. So how do we have these conversations? How does that... Um, really, you know, complicate the sense of what it means to be Asian American. Um, and, and, you know, and understand that the, this myth, this model minority myth is a tool of anti-Blackness. It's a way to show or tell, you know, Black Americans, Latinx folks, Indigenous folks, hey, look at these crazy rich Asians, super successful. They're not protesting. They're supposedly not asking for help. Why can't you be like them, yeah. right? It, it is at its core an anti-Black wedge meant to divide and conquer communities, community of communities of color against each other. Um, and yeah, and really to discipline Asian Americans. Uh, and, and really, it's a lie. It's, and, and that's what I just try to tell my students that, no, you know, if you look at Asian American history, we have always resisted. We have always protested. We just don't know this history. You're not taught this history. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we need to, we, we, we gotta, not just Asian Americans, but all Americans need to understand that um, Asian Americans cannot be used, right? For any, any evil purpose or whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, that, yeah, we have something to be proud of. I can imagine that your students who have had any, if they've had a shred of the experience that you've just told me about, that when they like find you, it's like Mm -hmm. bomb to the soul. Like, I feel like, do you feel like you end up being kind of a therapist in some way? Do they, like, were they like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. How how did that play out in, in the classroom setting in terms of you giving them this knowledge to empower them and, and help them kind of dismantle a lot of the internalized and externalized uh, experience they've had. Um, I always had a tissue box in my office. Mm. I mean, most professors do. And I constantly had to replenish it. Um, I, I think 
part of the power, but also it's a limited power of Asian American studies is its ability to heal. Um, you know, yeah, students will come in and, uh, for example, in my oral history classes, they'll interview their, their mom or their aunt, uh, and they'll talk about what it was like to be a so-called boat person, fleeing from pirates, finding safety in a United Nations camp uh, in, in Singapore, and then um, something will heal inside of them, right? Like talking to their parents about something that they've never heard. You know, that's something I experienced when I was their age. And that just made me want to do this work even more, right? It's almost like I'm trying to heal the 12-year-old in me who sure. didn't have these conversations or didn't understand, like, for example, why my mom would always tell me, <laughs> even though I, you know, she signed me up for swimming lessons, but any body of water, she would tell me, don't go in there. You're going to drown. It didn't matter if it, was, if it was the ocean or if we're, we're uh, you know, in a, in a day's in and hanging out at the swimming pool. She just would see a body of water and freak out that I would die. And, you know, going back to the relationship between intergenerational trauma and race, I was so embarrassed whenever she would say these things. Like, first of all, mom, I can swim. Second of all, this is like a four inch pool. I'm not going to drown. So. Right. You know, stop shouting in your broken English that everyone can hear and, you know, uh, stop embarrassing me. You know, I'm trying to pass. I'm trying to assimilate into whiteness and you're making it that much harder with your irrational, hysterical uh, uh, nightmares about me drowning. But then later, when I talked to her about the Korean War, she told me about how her uh, one of her brothers almost drowned as they fled from North Korea to South Korea. Uh, this was like a couple of years before the Korean War, but it was still part of this, you know, unrest, uh, this chaos on the Korean Peninsula. Then it clicked. Oh, that's why she's scared of water. Yeah. Because she, yeah, of course. That, that's not irrational. That's reason. It's so reasonable. Right. But that's the kind of connection my students would make all the time why they would come in my office and cry and use all my, <laughs> my tissues. But I, you know, I said the word limited because I'm not a therapist. Yeah. And I take that, you know, the work of therapists, I take that seriously because I'm in therapy and the work, you know, what my therapists do, I can't do, I'm not trained. Yeah. And to pretend that I could offer the same knowledge or techniques would be unethical and even potentially harmful, right? So I would often, I would do my best to hold space for my students, let them process, let them cry, but then I would either, you know, I put on my academic hat, I would steer the conversation towards themes of the course or learning yeah. goals. Uh, and I felt awful doing that. Or I would say, oh, maybe you should go to counseling services on campus. Um, but they knew, and I knew that most of the time, uh, counseling services was culturally incompetent. It was even harmful for a lot of my students. They would tell me that, yeah, I did go see a therapist, but they weren't Asian. And they said this one thing, and it was really insensitive, and I felt even more unsafe. So that's the predicament, right, of Asian American studies. 
it unleashes these emotions of pain and sadness and anger. But because it's in academia, these emotions don't go anywhere, right? Like they can't heal in the space of the classroom because we're not therapists and they can't heal in the counseling center because often they're not equipped to deal with Asian Americans, often because of the model minority myth that says Asian Americans are doing fine, they don't need help. So why offer resources to hire an Asian American therapist, right? So yeah. these students are just like walking around in pain and then COVID hits, anti-Asian violence hits, they see their you know, elders, people who remind them of their parents or grandparents getting beaten up and they have nowhere to go. So that is something I'm trying to think through. That's why I have the H, the healing, because yeah. oh my God, you know, it's not just about reading books or listening to, listening to lectures. There needs to be some kind of space for healing. How do we incorporate that into the, into the learning process, right? Like how can learning heal and how, or how can education heal and how can healing educate? That is something I'm trying to figure out with my business and, and with the services that I'm offering. That's, I love, I love that. Um, and I love that you're like, okay, but I'm actually not a therapist, yeah. <laughs> um, you know? And I, I think that's, that's um, rec recognizing kind of the boundary there too. Because yeah. um, while they may, the connection is like the beginning, you know, it's almost like maybe what, what's unleashed in them and what they start to have these realizations with you is like the starting point for them, but then actually the processing and healing kind of goes in a, you know, like, like it's for a different resource or a different thing. And it, obviously from what you're saying, the challenges of finding someone who might be able to process with that, that with them in a safe space is um, not a reality for, mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, you and I talked about like healing circles um, and, and spaces for that. Can you talk a little bit about about that work and and I, I get a better sense now of, of where that where that's coming from but but that part of the work that you're doing yeah so I mean just with my own emotional journey uh, as an Asian American as an Asian American studies professor and again these kind of violent institutions of academia um, I really needed to heal. I still do. And that's why I've sought certain healing spaces. Um, that's why I've had a therapist, different therapist for a while. But uh, I felt like I needed something a little bit different. And, and uh, a friend of mine uh, is, uh, she's a part of this organization called YES with an exclamation point. So yes, <laughs> uh, and they organize these gatherings called, called jams. Um, it's not a musical thing, but it's kind of the idea that if you get a bunch of people together who share a certain identity, like you know, Asian American, an Asian American identity or a career, uh, like uh, you know, there are jams for educators or jams for, um, uh, who else? I don't know. Different. There, there are these different sorts of jams. If you get them together 
in a week and have some facilitators, but they're not exactly facilitators. They sort of create this container where different exercises can happen and, and people can share and process and, and cry. There's a lot of crying involved. Um, then, yeah, then we can really begin to heal in community. Uh, so I attended a jam and, and it was uh, an Asian American jam and it was, it was powerful. Um, I, yeah, I just saw that. Oh my God, there, there, there's just so much pain in our, in our community. And there's so much pain in myself that I haven't deeply addressed. Um, and so uh, offering a healing circle is, is something I'm still thinking through because again, I'm not trained uh, in that context, but it's something I would like to explore more and, and not just do by myself, right? Like, I mean, this is partly why I love uh, this new venture of mine is unlike academia, where for the most part, you're by yourself, right? You're working on a paper or whatever. Um, here, I get to collaborate with amazing therapists and healers and activists and whoever, be in conversation with them, learn from them, share with them. So um, yeah, I've, I've been talking to a couple of friends who are part of these healing circles and just talking about, yeah, maybe like offering a healing circle for academics, um, which I know there's a huge need for, I need it, right? Yeah, uh, sure. and, and I would love to kind of co-create that, that space. Um, yeah. I can't wait to see what comes out of that. Um, so I will for sure put the, um, the website of that yes organization in the show notes. Um, and, um, and the book that you talked about minor feelings. Um, it's not, you're not, I, I've heard that book brought up several times and I, it's, uh, I need to read it. Um, how do people find you and work with you, um, and, and contact you and all those things? Um, so my website is being very slow in its <laughs> development. Um, I, I have someone helping me out, but, uh, yeah, um, you know, we're all burned out. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and so in the spirit of, of, of self-compassion, I'm trying not to, um, beat myself up for not having a website, but, uh, I have a LinkedIn page and, uh, I think I dropped the link. Yeah. The I'll chat put that in the show notes. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, folks can reach out to me that way. Uh, I do have a website, um, that is going to retire once I launch the mom website, but it's, it's terrykpark.com. And I think, yeah, I have a, I have some information about my consulting services there and uh, a mailing list that folks can join. Awesome. Um, yeah. Awesome. And, uh, what else? Are there are other ways. I don't know. I'm on social medias on the, yeah. The or the... yeah. Uh, I, I, I've started different pages for mom. I, I have hopes and dreams of like starting a TikTok page. Um, that's what the youth are looking at. I know. So uh, yeah. um, and, you know, one of the great things and the things that I appreciate about academia is that I, I taught so many great students who, you know, like we talked about before, found a sense of healing in my classes and my offices and who have offered to help me with this business. So, um, 
yeah, I think I have a, a few folks who might help me with the social media part who are much more fluent in TikTok and Instagram and all of that. That's, yeah. that's I love that. Yeah. I feel like TikTok is like a slippery slope and it's, yeah, I've been resisting, but I actually heard like, there's some interesting, like social stuff, like, like um, activism on there as well. I mean, which, which makes sense. Cause there is on, on Instagram and that's who I try to follow, but right. In my mind, I feel like it's just like people singing songs and like yeah. pointing at signs that have words and making funny faces. So I, I feel like I, I need to explore it. This is the second conversation in two days where that's come up. So, oh. um, all right. Well, Dr. Terry Park, thank you so, so, so much for, for joining me today. Um, such a, such a really powerful description of your experience and the work that you're doing and, and the, the, the heart centeredness mm. of it. Um, and the urgency of it as well. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And um, I can't wait to, I can't wait for everyone to hear it. Thank you, Jill. It's a pleasure to be here and appreciate you holding space for, for me and others. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts, and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D, and please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.